Hello, everyone. This is Kenneth Vogt welcoming you to this Life Science Marketing Society webinar. The Life Science Marketing Society aims to bring you experiential wisdom, advice, and insight from fellow marketers across the life science industry and beyond. So today's presentation is entitled Seven Hard-Won Lessons for Successful Content Marketing to Scientific Audiences and is being presented by Dr. Nick Oswald. Nick is the founder of Bite Size Bio. After a decade of working in academic and industry labs, Nick developed the idea of a central online resource to assemble the greatest mentoring and practical advice to help bioscience researchers from around the world. And so Bite Size Bio was born. As always, we'll have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please um, type in any questions that you have into the questions box which appears on the top right panel of your screen, and I'll put them to Nick at the end. So now, over to you, Nick, for the presentation. Thank you, Ken, and thank you to everyone for joining us. So this is the first Life Sciences Mar Life Science Marketing Society webinar in some time, so that's quite exciting. Um, as you'll have seen, we were looking at rebooting the society to bring you more regular webinars, probably on a monthly basis, that bring together colleagues and experts from across life science marketing and beyond to share experience, learning and best practices so we can all grow together professionally. Today, I'll be discussing some of my experiences in growing a content marketing platform from scratch. So that, con that platform was completely bootstrapped and that meant we took the long road, which as you know, the long road is always more eventful and filled with mistakes, wins and lessons. So the idea is that I'll share my mistakes, wins and lessons, so that you don't have to make the same mistakes and you can just go straight to the wins. So to give you a context of where this is coming from, I'm not a trained marketer. I've learned all, everything I know about marketing I've learned on the job through experimentation from other people, some really great people, and through trial and error. And also because of how this started, and I'll explain in a moment, I, don't, I didn't have the same commercial restraints or pressures setting up Bite Size Bio that people typically have when they set up something like this. And that meant I could play with it. And I think that gives some insight that is, you know, the playing and the mistakes give you some insight that's hopefully useful to you in whatever context this concept is useful to you for. So where it all began for me um, is that typical speed bump moment in many scientific careers, the end of the second postdoc. I completed my PhD, which was rather traumatic, then got out of academia as quickly as I could. I went to work as a postdoctoral researcher in a couple of wonderful and very interesting startup biotech companies. And that, that startup environment was great. You get to take on roles away from the bench. It's kind of all hands on deck. Um, and, it, and, and doing that, doing things away from the lab as well as in it, I realized that my strength wasn't in the doing of the science, but in connecting people and connecting ideas within science. And so at that point, I realized I wanted to move away from the bench and into something around connecting scientists and helping them to excel. And luckily for me, this epiphany happened in 2007, which was really was an inflection point for global communication. It's funny to think that at that point, the iPhone, no one, no one knew what an iPhone was yet. There was barely any social media, but two, uh, but two tools had recently come of age that would revolutionize the sharing of information in general and content marketing in particular. And those two tools, were WordPress and Google. So WordPress made it very easy to publish 
uh, publish information in a way that was categorized and people could easily find. And Google enabled relevant users to find the content that you had published. So publishing was suddenly democratized and wild, wide open. The internet was like the Wild West. Anyone could create content. And Google was very open to ranking it and making it be found, helping it to be found if it was relevant. From my perspective, I could suddenly write and publish content from my dining room table, content that I had a chance of joining established publications and websites and buying for the attention of scientific researchers. That sounded like good fun, so I had a go at it. I started a personal blog called Bite Size Bio, in which I wrote articles that I felt would help researchers to more easily tread the path that I had just taken. Those articles got some initial traction within Google and so on. And I got other researchers involved to do the same, to share their experiences. And so this became a, job, a blog where experience, advice, and know-how was shared. So just as a side note, I mentioned the Life Science Marketing Society is about sharing experience for fellow marketers so that we can help each other improve. This is the same core foundational value that Bite Size Bio is uh, initially built upon. Something I think is unusual about Bite Size Bio is that for the first two years of its life, Bite Size Bio was completely non-commercial. I was still working full-time in the lab and getting up extremely early most mornings to write and edit articles for Bite Size Bio. This meant that although I didn't get much time to sleep, Bite Size Bio had room to grow and breathe without, without any commercial pressure. And I think that foundation enabled the website to develop into something unique. So after two years of me writing articles and other people writing articles, Bite Size Bio's traffic grew to a level that would support a business. And at that point, we added the commercial elements that would en enable it to support itself, hire staff and do more. But the core ethos of Bite Size Bio, of creating content purely for the benefit of researchers without any commercial uh, intent, is still very much protected within the company because that makes it a special entity. Um, that's the core driver of what we do. Um, but also the way that this was built also provides some useful insight in for, for you if you want to do something similar within your own company or if you already are doing that within your own company. So fast forward to, to today, um, Bite Size Bio contains thousands of content pieces, articles, webinars, ebooks, podcasts, and courses to help bioscience researchers in their jobs. Those have been produced by hundreds of lab-based researchers and many biotech companies and institutes who partner with us. It's consistently used by uh, around 400,000 researchers each month and is a consistently engaged community of about 100,000. And we work hard to continue to grow the resource base to keep helping researchers. That's the basis of everything that we do. That's the background. But so let's look at uh, Bite Size Bio from a content marketing angle. So you'll be familiar with a marketing funnel like this one. It depicts somehow attracting the attention of your target audience and re-engaging them in such a way that you bring them benefits so that they stick around. This develops an intentive community from which you are then in a position, strong position to drive sales. Once you have someone in a community who is who's consuming content that you're creating, that is, you know, you're not trying to sell to them, it's influencing them, then you're in a strong place to, to, to get them down the funnel into the sale. That in essence describes how Bite Size Bio functions, functions as a content marketing machine from that angle. Bite Size Bio attracts scientists from organic search by providing content 
that answers the problems that they are searching in organic search to solve. We can then continue to nurture, delight and benefit them with further unique and helpful content. As I mentioned, we have and we produce a lot of, of relevant non-commercial content that we can keep serving to people who have entered our community or have entered our, or our orbit. And this, so this enables us to do a lot of nurturing and re-engagement and keep a very happy and attentive audience that serves the audience and primes them for the sales processes for our customers. Now remember that Bites Buy was initially built with zero pressure to do anything commercial. So the focus for today's uh, webinar is how we have built a platform in that pristine way to create a lot of content that just creates the community and creates that environment that it can then be um, converted for sales and marketing, then can then be harnessed for sales and marketing activities. So again, this was all bootstrapped and built by trial and error by a novice marketer with help from lots of people. Lots of trial and error, lots of error. And there are seven lessons that I have distilled from those errors and some blind luck that, that I, that, in, in some of the decisions that I made. The, uh, the errors and decisions that got us to the stage, the seven lessons are derived from those. So the first lesson, most important lesson really, the first lesson is before you do anything else, is that you must, your, your content must address the needs of your audience. Addressing the needs of your audience sounds quite obvious. It means giving them something that they will find useful. Better if it is something that they want, or better still if it is something that they really need, something that meets them when they're experiencing a pain point. Giving like this is the best way to connect with and influence, influence someone. Do it over and over again in a professional context and you will retain them, you'll build trust and you'll build authority. And this is the essence of creating a solid content marketing base. Using content to give prospective customers what they want or better what they need, they need in order to attract them in and build that trust and authority that will prime prime them for the sale when the time is right. A common problem in commercial environments is that giving first goes against human nature and kind of commercial orthodoxy in a lot of ways. We all have needs. The company has needs. We need to sell stuff. We need to meet targets. We will take and we'll tend to fix on those needs and address them first. But at its foundation, content marketing means stepping back from this the, uh, you know, this compelling need and taking the harder and less natural road to figuring out the pain that your audience is experiencing and addressing it in a, such a way that the sale actually becomes easier down the line. As I mentioned, when I started in 2007, the blogging revolution was well underway. Lots of people were creating content using WordPress, most of it, but most of it was not significantly ranked by Google, and it was not seen by many people. So what was different with Bite Size Bio? Well, let's look at a comparison. So in life sciences, one place in 2007 where there was a lot of great blogging going on was a website called Science Blogs. In fact, it's still going. In there, individual scientists like me at the time were being given the freedom to blog about whatever they wanted. And here's a snapshot from there from them from the Wayback Machine in 2007. And here's what the bloggers in there were talking about. They're talking about what is happening now, so news, what they are seeing, so current observations, things that are happening around them, stuff that's making them unhappy or unhappy, so opinions. 
And that's fine and entertaining. And I read lots of those blogs at the time, some great content in there. Everyone was just sharing and writing what, what we wanted to. They were doing it and I was doing it. But much of my content writing at, written at that time is still being viewed to this day, 15 years later. And these aren't. Why is that? Well, there is a saying that it's better to be lucky than good. And luckily for me, I did something different. So this is the Wayback uh, Machine's uh, snapshot from Bites' bio from October 2007, the same time as that science blog's snapshot. As you can see, there's a focus here on articles that either connect with um, the pain of, PC, of, uh, of researchers or, um, or that help them in, um, in some way or, or might connect with them in some way to show them that we're, you know, we're of the same. Everything here was really about connecting with people that were in the lab or were um, or, or solving their pain points directly. It wasn't a, a direct, deliberate thing. That's just what I happened to be doing, right? So in address, but it happened that in addressing that need of the target audience in a useful and impactful way, people liked it, they came back for more. They told their friends. Google ranked it for various reasons, Some, in some ways because it was good content that was asking for things that people were searching about, but also because people were visiting the website, that primed it as well, and people were sharing it. Um, for whatever reasons, Google ranked it, and the people who found it also found it useful, and, and they stuck around. That created an, an initial inflow of readers, and that primed the pump that started Bite Size Bio. This would not have happened if I was not if I didn't happen to be addressing the core needs of the audience. Okay, and, and that, that was the initial intent of the content I was making. So it was just coming out like that. So as I said, I consistently delivered content like this every day for two years to gradually suck in that audience of researchers and retain them with no strings attached. And that lack of commercial pressure meant that we could keep addressing the audience need without having to address our own. So we didn't, I mean, I've written, there's a product article in here, interestingly, that wasn't sponsored, that was actually because I'd used it in the lab and I thought it was good, so I shared it. Right? But there was no commercial, there was nothing commercially to, to make me have to spend 50% of my time on, um, on, on trying to sell as well as, uh, as, well as you know, making the, the content, the, the, the initial priming. So that lack of commercial pressure meant we could keep addressing the audience needs without having to address our own. Nowadays, we do have commercial needs, of course, because now we're a company. Now we, uh, that has uh, benefits and downsides, but we intentionally ring fence our efforts to keep addressing the core need of the audience with articles like this um, and keeping this detached from the commercial drivers as much as possible because this creating this content, this non-commercial stuff that's in our DNA, is what works for us and it's in the lifeblood of what we are really. And most of those science blog articles, if you look back at them, they didn't address core needs. They interested people in the moment, but they didn't delight them by addressing a pain point or helping them with something they were struggling with. So there were no Google searches looking for that info that they were providing, or not many. Uh, there was less word of mouth sharing. That meant no or low organic, organic traffic inflows into that community. But luckily for me, as I said, the initial intention for us, and for me in Bite Size Bio, was to address the core needs. So we had the outcome that grew Bite Size into a content hub, a community and a well-nurtured marketing platform. So the internet ecosystem has changed a lot over the years, but the basic premise still holds. 
Content that agnostically meets the core needs of your audience is the basis for the most effective content marketing. So the first lesson of the seven, and they're not all as long as this, so, uh, is that this lesson I didn't learn it by experimentation, but happened to follow it by pure chance, is that the one core ingredient for good content marketing is to have a pure and imaginative, imaginative focus on audience need rather than your own. Okay, but that's not all you need, of course, or it would be, well, it wouldn't be easy, but it would be relatively easy. That's not all you need. The second lesson I learned was that for a functioning content marketing platform, you need a foundation of content that's not only good and addressing a core need, but that is evergreen. So evergreen content is, of course, content that lasts, content that stays relevant to your audience for a long time, preferably for years. If your content stays relevant for years, and it is something that your audience will actively search for year after year, then each piece of content effectively works year after year to pump new audience into your platform for organic search. Now, what people get get sucked into when you're doing it, when they're doing, building, uh, they're making content for their uh, for their own company, so on, is that they get sucked into posting a content on schedule. On a schedule, it's human nature to think that people will consume what you post as you're posting it, like you're publishing in a, in a, a magazine or something like that. You know, post it and people will be reading it tomorrow. That's how I thought of Bite Size Bible for a long time. But then I realized that what I was doing was creating content not just for the, would not be relevant in the next month. It needed to be relevant in the next year and even in the next decade. So staying as foundational as possible for a lot of the content is, is a really useful thing to do. So luckily for me, that's exactly what I was mostly doing. Not, I mean, some of the, some of the things I wrote back in the day were, were timely. It wasn't pristine and we've since weeded them out because they're not doing anything in a content marketing content in, in, in a, the, they're not doing anything for this model that I'm talking about of pumping um, people into the platform and providing them with what they need. So here's an example of an article that I wrote in 2008. Um, that, so as you can see, this is something that well, I was doing a lot of PCR at the time, and he, this was basically a, a compilation of all of the all of the mistakes and solutions that I'd found over the years, um, and you know stuff from other people as well. Um, so the interesting thing about that, I wrote it in 2008. This graph below shows the the daily page views to this article, so it's going up and down. Here's the weekends. Um, and this peak is about 200 um, page views there. This is the daily page views for the last few weeks. So this was an article that was written 15 years ago, and it's been, um, it, it, it's this one article has been literally around this level of traffic for almost 15 years, right? Because it hit all of those things. It hit all of those, um, those uh, points. That I've just been talking about. So over its, you know, another, another way to look at it is over 15 years, that's over 1 million researcher touch points over this time for one article that probably took me two, three hours to write. Okay. Once you have five, 10, 50, 100 articles doing this sort of thing, you now have a pump that brings in relevant researchers into your orbit on autopilot. And now you can work with them to nurture them with further content and later begin dripping in product related messaging. Again, this 
emphasises how important it is to keep your efforts towards educational content pristine and separate from the product messaging article, uh, uh, product me uh, messaging efforts. The evergreen educational content addresses your audience's core needs, like this, and wins your consistent inflow of researchers, like this. While the product product um, messaging can and must come as a separate layer. So, the second lesson is to keep things evergreen as much as possible. So, if we think of the collection of evergreen articles uh, that you have in your collection, you know, you're a bit down the line. You, you, you think of your your collection of evergreen articles as bricks that provide the foundation for your content platform. Right, each each brick needs a new idea. Okay, it needs a, it needs to address the audience's need in a different way, a new way. It needs imagination, and these these ideas are the most difficult part. So you need to prioritize as an editorial process, you need to pri prioritize creating a flow of ideas for what each brick is going to be made of. A common problem when you set up an editorial process in your, and uh, is, to, is to not focus on the ideas, but to focus on some schedule or deadline type process. And this, once you get into it, because ideas are difficult to come across, they are, the ideation, you can't be forced. The schedule or the deadline can compress and deform the ideation that is needed for a solid foundation. So instead of focusing on a publication schedule or deadline sort of system, you need to focus on ways to create or make a primary thing. I mean, you can have deadlines and so on, but the primary focus needs to be on creating inflows of good ideas into your editorial process. Having this as your focus can make content creation hard because you're holding yourself to a high standard, but it's worth it. Because if you think of that one article there that's, that's delivered a million people over 15 years, okay, that takes, it took some effort to figure out, okay, what's, what can I do? What can I do? Okay, here's a, you know, a, a, a PCR troubleshooting thing. You know, it sounds simple, but no one had done that at that time that I'd seen anyway. You need to come up with more things like that that address needs for, for the audience. So again, it makes content creation hard, but as well worth it. But so as an example of how this can go, right? Most people are, that we work with on Bite Size Bio, who uh, most researchers who we work with to create content and we ask them to come up with what, to come up with, um, Examples from their own experience uh, of of you know articles that they could contribute, and um, most people kind of max out at about five articles. That's kind of the average. And it's, it's it's the kind of five most top of the mind articles uh, or ideas that they can they can come up with. Then you have to start digging deeper. They have to start digging deeper, and most people because it's kind of a sideline for them with bite size. When we we talk to them, you know for um, for a lot of people we work with, it's kind of a sideline. Then um, they max out five ideas and they, they, they don't want to put the effort in to go deeper, which is absolutely fine. We're not asking them to do that. However, I, because I was very driven, I wrote almost 200 articles for Bite Size Bio. So I'm an, I was an average postdoc scientist, nothing special. And But those articles, that number of articles were possible because I focused on ideation 
I happen to focus on ideation rather than a schedule of some sort or, or anything like that. I, I literally melt every single part of my knowledge for ideas that would help people. And not every article was a hit either with Google or with the audience, but there was a relatively high success rate and that produced enough articles like the, um, like the one that I just showed you that, um, uh, you know, that, that primed the pump for it to get bite-sized going. So lesson three is that it's all down to the ide ideation. This, is, this should be the foundation of your flow of useful content into creating that foundation that again provides the inflows of the right people, the nurture to prime them for, for, for and make them available for, um, for sales messaging later. As I, as I said, content marketers fall into the, 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 the trap of focusing on the schedule or the quota quite a lot rather than ideation. When they do that, they tend to fall victim to a certain trap because you get stuck. You get stuck after those five, 10, 15 articles and you don't know what to do next. They tend to fall into a common trap. That trap is so common that in my experience in talking with other people and working with, with companies that do this and so on, that are trying to build their own content uh, platforms. It's so common that it deserves a lesson in itself. And that trap, is, uh, is that they revert to publishing news or other time-based content. So no news is good news if you're a content marketer, okay? So they fall into this trap, people fall into this trap of creating news or other time-based content because it's easier to write about what is happening now rather than to generate new ideas because new stuff is always happening, new papers are being published, new discoveries are being made and so on. So the ideas are generated for you. So it's, that's easy. It's easy to fill out a blogging schedule that is actually relevant to your company, but it does not address the two premises that I laid, today, laid out today. It, news does not address a core need for your audience, so you'll not derive Google ranking, traffic, brand influence, or audience delight from that. And by definition, news is not evergreen, <laughs> so you'll not derive long-term traffic inflows from it, even if it is ranked, because it'll go out of date pretty soon. Okay. So that's not to denigrate people who create news-based content. That is a skill in itself. It's very informative and useful. But if you're a content marketer, news is the death knell. So if you find yourself filling your schedule with news, then it's worth considering what you want to achieve with it and maybe considering whether you want to change course. Okay, back to those bricks again. So you have your foundation of bricks. Each one is an article that's pulling in relevant organic traffic from your target audience. Each article is evergreen. Each article is delivering a specific benefit to your audience, hopefully addressing a pain point, but any connection is good. Now you need to look after that structure to keep it solid, to keep each brick in prime condition over the years and keep the bricks working together as a whole and so on. So that again, it does the job of pulling people in from organic traffic, delighting them, uh, organic search, delighting them and um, and priming them for, for downstream um, marketing messaging, uh, sales messaging. Things like inevitably content will be needed, will need to be updated to keep it accurate, stuff will go out of date, or it might be, need to be removed because it's out of date and no, no longer relevant. As time goes on, and you know, think about Bite Size Buy, we have thousands of articles in here. So um, as time goes on, the maintenance, pruning and sculpting them becomes as important as, or even more important than creating new content, okay? This is a mag, it's not a magazine, this is an encyclopedia and it needs to be kept, kept up to date. Okay, 
Um, again, so I mentioned so that's a major effort for us at Bite Size Bio. But even if you have your your base is fifty articles, it's easy to just focus on um, making new content and uh, and forget about the old stuff. You need to go back to the old stuff and make sure it's it's kept up to 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 speed so that it continues doing and performing optimally for you. For example, once you have an established URL that is pulling in search traffic, you know, with an article on it, it's, it's um, pulling in search, search traffic because Google has ranked it for search terms and so on, because it's a good content on there. That's a very, very valuable thing, and it can be uh, used and repurposed even if you need to change the content on there, because Google values the history and relevance of a URL. So in a way, you can think about it, that the URLs are the substratum of your, um, of your content foundation. So in 2012, so here's a great mistake. So in 2012, this was illustrated to me when um, we changed the URL structure of Bite Size Bio to make them more consistent. That was a great idea. The content on the website remained all the same, but the URLs were slightly changed. And Bite Size Bio's pl traffic plummeted to about 10% of its normal value. And it took us a couple of days to notice that, uh, that we didn't have many staff at the time. And by the time we noticed and changed it back, the damage was done. And it took us a year to get back to the previous level. And that was when Google was much more permissive than it, than, than, um, than it is now. I don't even think um, a site like Bite Size Bio would survive that, would be able to recover from that sort of change now. You've got to maintain that whole thing. Just look after everything once it's in place um, and um, make sure everything is kept pristine and backed up and so on. Um, but again, if you think about, you, you know, that brick wall of content being, you know, made up of lots of URLs that are all, all connected to Google, um, and ranked by Google in different ways. Um, this article on Bite Size Bio provides a good illustration of the sort of maintenance that you, that you can do. So this article, DNA allegation, how it works on sick top tips is a fusion of two original articles. One was um, five DNA ligation tips, which, which was actually the first article I ever wrote for Bite Size Bio. And it was only about 500 words long. And that pulled in several, several hundred visitors per day for many years. Um, but then Google's algorithm changed. Um, Google was favoring longer articles, so 500 words wasn't cutting it. So we initially changed it to six DNA ligation tips so we could extend it to what the kind of word minimum was at the time or the, the target word minimum was at the time. That helped things for a while. And then later we had to go further. Um, we had to fuse it with another article called um, DNA allegation, how it works. So there's the two things. Um, that, also, that was also written in 2008. So we fused those two articles together so that we could maintain this as an optimal, maintain, maintain this as an optimal um, performer inside Google, you know, based on what Google was looking for. Um, yeah, so Google was looking for even longer articles and it was looking for kind of more structured articles and content than the original two were, than it was the, the original requirement was in 2008. Of, so if you notice that this is on this URL, so it's on the URL of how DNA ligation works and the, the six top tips ones or the five top tips ones, that was sacrificed and used to redirect into this one because this one we assessed was the better performing URL. That was the more valuable one. So one had to go and then they had to go together. They had to be, um, all the content was glued inside this one. 
obviously there's a lot of analysis going on in the background to figure out what's needed there. Um, but this emphasizes the value of viewing your content as a structured foundation made up of content pieces that are valuable and need to be maintained. And it shows the sort of things that you can do to try and retain and improve the value of the content you've already made rather than just continuously creating new content at the neglect of old content, which is which is a real tendency again in people with people I've worked with, that's the focus on make new, make new, make new. It doesn't that is part of it, but the maintenance is really um is really important as well. So lesson five is really this sort of planning, pruning and coordination is now needed to keep your articles accurate and to keep them also compliant with Google's ever-changing priorities and algorithms. So suddenly there's been a lot of mention of Google and that is because Google is not fair anymore. <laughs> the internet used to be the wild west and it isn't anymore. We've got to all, we all have to, to hang up our cowboy boots and play by Google's rules. So back in the day, 2007, Google and others democratized publishing with work, WordPress acting as a freely accessible um, vehicle for getting content out there and Google being the delivery. Okay. In 2007, I paid no attention to what Google wanted and I just wrote about what, other, what I thought scientists needed. And I was able to, from my dining room table, build a content hub that came from nowhere to being part of life for lots of scientists, right? And, and, and until 2020, we only paid light attention to search engine optimization. We only paid a little bit of attention to what Google wanted. We just, you know, structure of the website and so on. Very little on-page stuff um, was needed. We still got really good rankings because the content was good. Um, because we made good content that addresses the need, we were largely untouched by Google's algorithm updates over the years. But since then, Google has changed the game to such an extent that the SEO has to become sent a central part of any content strategy. Okay, we can do this. But one one lesson here is that there is a, now an additional cost in, in this kind of content marketing. And that is the cost in constantly staying abreast of Google's rule changes and implementing them, which are both, uh, you know, both difficult. And one kind of sad downside of that environment that Google's created now is that floating a new website from scratch, repeating what I did with Bite Size Bio, I think that would be more or less impossible now for, for various reasons. But one prime be reason being that, that just writing good content is not enough now. You need to be able to invest enough money to understand and adhere to Google's complicated and completely opaque rule changes since uh, because SEO is just too specialized to understand yourself. You need to get support and excellent SEO support is now vital for this sort of thing. I'm thankful it's something that we, we are very strong in because good support is easy to find, but excellent support like we have is much more difficult to come across, and but it's really a main part of something like this now. So lesson six is really that, as well as addressing the audience need with content that is evergreen, and then keeping it up to date and primed, you're also gonna to have to pay to understand and play by Google's rules. Sad fact, but every cowboy's got to retire at some point, so. Um, Google is looking for all sorts of details and parameters from you in order for your content to rank nowadays. But the main change is that while the mantra back in the day used to be that content is king, meaning that if you write great content, you will win. Nowadays, content is no longer king. Authority is, right? So you can write great content, but you the, the first thing you need to get you through the gate is authority. 
or to be exact, you need expertise, experience, authority, and trustworthiness, or EEAT, as defined by Google. Whoever has the highest score of that in Google's eyes, they get through the gate. So EEAT stands for experience, expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness. Okay. It's, it's one measurement that the web that bite size that Google rather makes on every every website that it's that it's ranking, and well not every website actually sorry in in certain subject areas, so those ratings are factored into the ranking decisions for each page of the website. Initially, we were not set up for this. We were we you know we were Wild West blog, and we had to make big adjustments to to um to to um to comply with this. Um, and it took us a couple of years to, to pull it around to being back to prime again. Um, the prominence of the EAT rating has grown dramatically over the four, last four years, and now it's a very, very important factor. So, so EAT must be central to your whole content delivery strategy, strategy and structure now. So here's what the EAT stands for, really. Um, Google is looking for how much experience does the person who has created the content have the, the experience is firsthand, so so I can't write about um, you know uh, I could I can't write about uh, touring down China for example because I've never been to China. So um, even though I could research it to the to the ends of the earth and know lots about it, if I didn't demonstrate in the article that I'd actually done it, then that's downranked by Google. Expertise I can have that by researching it, but Google's looking for that as well. Authoritativeness is more about the um, is more about the website. Does it have a good reputation for producing good content, and does it have indicators on the website that's doing that? And trustworthiness is about you know all your security being up to date and um, and all sorts of different stuff that you've got to um, indicate to Google now. So Google is testing their website in all sorts of different ways that it never did before. You should just look at is the content good. Or, or does it, you know, does it um, meet the need that the person is searching for? Now it's doing lots of other things that you have to, um, you have to kind of uh, hoops you have to jump through. So each content piece in the website as a as a whole has to be configured to demonstrate all of this in the way that Google is looking for it to be demonstrated. So ET, just as an aside, it's not it's not used for ranking all types of websites. As I said, only as they call it, your money or your life topics. So um, science is most certainly uh, your money or your life topic. It's things that could affect, you know, it can affect things. You know, we're, we're not going to, um, they mean something to, to people and people can hurt themselves if the wrong information is there and so on. It's easy to see why. If you, if you, if you think of some of the fringe pseudoscientific ideas that you've heard in the past and, and, you know, and think of the dangers of those being highly ranked in search engines, that's what Google is is wrangling with and it's easily to see why they would then the, their solution would be to defer to known authority um for example if someone's looking for a medical issue like this why do i have a sore throat it would make sense for in the uk the nhs to come top or your local you know equivalent to come top you wouldn't want some random person <laughs> telling someone what to do but there's a downside of deferring to that authority and that is that that Google is, there's a danger of creating an echo chamber by narrowing the range of scientists who will voice with an organic search. It's a difficult thing to balance, and I, I don't want to envy Google with 
trying to solve that particular problem. But for you as a content marketer, it means that, that not only do you have to address the audience needs, which was number one, uh, and create evergreen content that does that so that it stays relevant, stays around, um, create a flow of ideas that enable you to pre keep producing that content, to avoid the trap of news and time-based content. You also have to maintain your article archive and its structure, and you also have to have excellent SEO support. You now also need to demonstrate EEAT to Google and to stay continuously up to date with its rules and requirements for this. Okay. So all of that is the is what you need to do. The payoff is that by creating a bank of educational content that follows these lessons, you'll have a good chance of developing a highly valuable tool. One that delivers ongoing inflows of researchers from organic search, that serves, delights and retains those researchers in such a way that they will be accessible and attentive to your direct product service marketing, marketing messaging down the line. So those are my seven lessons. And if you have any questions, I would be happy to take them. All right. Well, thank you, Nick. That was an excellent presentation. And uh, a few questions popped into my mind. But uh, if if anyone else has questions, please just feel free to post them in the question box that appears on the top right of your screen. And I will present them to Nick. So a few things that have popped up already. Um, you said that your PCR troubleshooting article was published in 2008. That's what it said on, on the page you showed, but on the website, or well, that's what it said when you showed the page, but on the, the page you showed, it said 2016 instead of 2008. Why? Uh, okay. Yeah. So that's because, so we originally published it in 2008, that one, and <clears throat> nothing stays static. So again, it's a brick in the wall. And you maintain the brick, and then when you when you update and you um, we'll update that article last in 2016, so it'll be well overdue uh, a service again, and that'll be coming back around. So that's why the the publication date is newer because it's been updated and uh, last in 2016. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Well, yeah, the moving target thing you talked about quite a bit, so that is the reality of the world. Um, here's another question that comes up. Um, we are a startup company and we want to start our own content platform. Is this strategy still possible to execute successfully? It's certainly more difficult than it used to be. Um, as a startup company, you will have staff who are authoritative, you know, authorities in what they do. And so you can use them to start building authority and you know, the EAT stuff. Um, it's one, one major thing is that it's difficult to, Google, I didn't really mention that, but Google is so overwhelmed with the number of websites around that it is not really ranking, uh, not really indexing new websites very efficiently. So it takes, it might take a much longer time to get to, to, um, to start getting indexed I was, but you know, when I started, I would write an article and it would be in Google the same day. Now you might wait a long time and it might take a long time to, to, um, to derive the authority that you need to get a decent ranking and so on. It's possible and there are ways to shortcut it, um, but doing it from scratch yourself would take quite a, 
yeah, it's a more serious undertaking than than it, than it was in the past, but potentially doable. Okay, um, you had mentioned that it's really important to have an excellent CEO person or company that you use SEO, whatever I said. <laughs> uh, but somebody asked the question: Well, who do you use for SEO? Uh, we, our SEO is a is a precious resource who is embedded in our team. <laughs> but, but we can, yeah, we do. We I don't. This isn't meant to be sales pitch, but we do. We do SEOs. We use SEO um, know-how, and we use the SEO um, weight of bite-sized buying to to do things to lift SEO for other websites. That's mini sales pitch, but that that's what we do. <laughs> All right. Well, that makes sense. Um, you talked about. Um, here's another question. You've you've talked a lot about attracting an audience with articles. What about converting them to leads for further follow-up? Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole different presentation, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so you're obviously getting people washing over the the website, you know, from Google, and they just come, they view something, and they go away, and then and then we're trying to convert them into. Um, uh, you want to get them into the into your CRM so that you can contact them again. Um, so yeah, there's all sorts of ways to do that. The most effective we find is webinars. People, scientists have a seemingly unending appetite for webinars, which is not surprising because that's what we're, we're, we grow up on presentations. We, that's how we communicate. And, and that was happening before webinars were even a thing that webinars just make it easier. That's the most effective. We use eBooks or courses or other things, higher value um, content advertise on page um, to, um, on the, you know, when someone comes in an article, they'll, they'll be offered other content to, um, to convert them onto the, to the website, to, 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 into the CRM. Okay, very good. So, so you said you started this all basically yourself. Um, could somebody do that today? Could you do it with one person or is there a minimum team that you need to, to make this work? Well, if I was going to go back to myself, well, no, look at this. If I, if I try to look at, try to do it because the, the environment's completely different now. It's not just the Google stuff. It's also that, um, it's also that, uh, lucky for me, again, I was one of the first people that was doing, not the first, but there wasn't many people doing how-to articles for scientists at that time. And so it was, it was easy to be uh, remarkable. And now lots of people are doing it. So you're kind of playing catch up. So I, I think it could still be done. It's a much more ambitious project though. Mm -hmm. another, another thing that comes to mind too is that, okay, I, I probably do have to personally spearhead this in our organization, but other people are not as excited about, well, the first your first point. They wanna talk about what they wanna talk about. They don't want to talk about what the audience wants to hear. I mean, how do I how do I deal with that? I suppose it depends on the size of your team. Um, again, as I kind of mentioned, that what we do is we, you know, obviously there's commercial stuff that we're doing as well, and there needs to be resource in that. And what we try and do is, or what we do is, we keep the the, the original bite-sized bio. Is kind of a capsule in the middle of all that of the whole company that operates on its own 
the, the content, the pristine educational content production and maintenance happens separately from the commercial stuff. So they're not, they're not, it's not cross-contaminated because it's not, commercial stuff is, is, is ideas. It's just a different way of, of doing ideas, but people have a different reaction to it. So you need to have them, you know, them separate from each other. I would, if, if resource wasn't an issue, I would be saying have different people doing the, the education, one team doing the educational stuff and one, one um, team doing the commercial stuff and never the twain shall meet or whatever the closest you can get to that with the resource that you have would be the way to do. Right. All right. Well, uh, that brings an end to the questions so far. And is there anything else you want to add for a wrap up? No, uh, apart from, I don't know if you're going to mention it, the next, um, the next webinar. Yes, I will. Okay, All right. Can, well, <laughs> <laughs> then that officially brings us to the end of the webinar. And again, we want to thank you, Nick, for a very illuminating presentation. It, it, it was a great discussion and hopefully it gives people a lot of things to think about and a lot of things that they can talk to their upper management about and get them on board with something that really works. And, and finally, thanks to all of you, the audience, for taking your time to attend and listen in. Uh, if you enjoyed this webinar, please check out our other upcoming and on-demand webinars from fellow life science marketers at lifesciencemarketingsociety.org. Lifesciencemarketingsociety.org. And don't forget to uh, don't forget to tell your colleagues about the Life Science Marketing Society so they can benefit also and and perhaps we'll hear some of your voices in the future too so until next time good luck in all your work and goodbye from all of us at the life science marketing society <laughs>